Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, Black Women Amplified family. This is your girl, Monica Wisdom, and I am so excited that you are here with me today. I have to be honest, this is a special conversation for me. Shay Wafer is a transformative woman. She has this presence, this regal presence that makes you want to just sit up straighter and really be your best self. She is grounded, confident, and a powerful force for humanity. Her impact is woven throughout the tapestry of Black arts and theater around the world. Beginning her career as a founding partner of the Marla Gibbs Crossroads Arts and Academy Theater led her to becoming a pivotal contributor to the television show 227 starring Marla Gibbs and Regina King. Continuing in theater led her to the prestigious Yale School of Drama, where she graduated with a master's in theater management. Black arts goes far beyond the stage. It takes incredibly innovative teams to curate supportive stages for Black arts to thrive. Shay has been at the helm of legendary theaters and art centers around the nation, including St. Louis Black Repertory Theater, the August Wilson Center for African American Culture, and 651 Arts in Brooklyn. She is currently the executive director of the Waco Theater in Los Angeles, California. Listen, I can go on and on and on about her impressive career, but she is here with us today to share her story, her insights, and why she is so passionate about Black theater. Please give a warm Black Women Amplified welcome to the divine Shay Wafer. Good day, Miss Shay Wafer. I am so excited to have you here. I am thrilled. I think that you are one of the most phenomenal women that I have met in my life. And I have to say this in the beginning so I can move forward. But you had a pivotal impact on my life that you probably have no clue about. I remember when we met in St. Louis when you worked here, we would talk periodically, as well as doing your hair, but you know, whatever. (laughs) Right, right. I would talk to you and you saw me in a way at my young age that nobody saw me. And when I came to California one time, you took me to this church called Agape. And Agape Mm -hmm. blew my mind and it totally changed my life because I no longer felt like the odd duck in the world. It was like, oh my God, I found my tribe. And I don't know where I would be had you not made that introduction for me. I still watch the church online. I went every time I go to L.A., I would go. And so I think that you have the way of seeing people the way that we don't see ourselves quite yet. So for that, I have to say thank you. (laughs) That's amazing. I had no idea. I had no idea. (laughs) 
That's so good to hear. That's so good to hear. Because Agape is a special place. It is. I would order the cassette tapes. Like, this is how far back I go with Agape. And that introduction totally changed my life. So I just have to say thank you before we get into talking about you. You are an incredible woman. And I felt like it was important to share, tell, and archive the stories of Black women in the arts. Because I think some of the most incredible, intelligent women are nestled within the Black arts community, but are rarely seen and rarely heard of. We hear about the performers, but we don't hear about the people who are making the performances happen. happen. So tell us how your story begins and how did you go from Compton to managing some of the most legendary stages in the nation? Well... (laughs) It's an interesting story. It's a great story, and I'm and I'm, I'm I'm happy to share it. My route into the arts, or the road into the arts as a arts administrator, manager, producer, was very indirect. I was not exposed to the arts as a child. Well, I had some exposure, but it was only through school, through public schools. And at the time, you know, going to school in the '60s, you do a once a year trip downtown to see the opera or to see a ballet. But I don't remember that having a, a great impact on my life. I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember co- it deeply resonating with me or connecting with me in a way that I, it was something I wanted to do. I went to Howard University, and while I was there, I was the roommate with Angela Gibbs, who is the daughter of Marla Gibbs. And once I graduated from college, I came back home to Compton and I was teaching elementary school because my degree is in early childhood education, my undergraduate degree. Angela called me. Her mom had purchased a building and wanted to open a school of performing arts. And because of my background in education, she asked me to come help her with curriculum. So we were in our 20s. Here we are with this newly renovated building in South Central LA. And we opened up Crossroads Arts Academy and theater. What I noticed early on when I was there, though, is that everybody who came through there who was who were helping us or who were working, they all had an artistic practice. They were dancers, they were writers, they were directors. And I was the only one there who was solely focused on the administrative and the management functions of the organization. And it was from that experience I realized, oh, there's a need for somebody like me, somebody who has the bandwidth and has the interest and has the skills for managing. One of the early plays that we did was called 227, which later became a TV show, but it was a play first. Regina Hall, um, Regina King was 12 years old. She was in it. Marla Gibbs was in it. Hal Williams. Many of the actors who went on to be in the TV show were in this play. It was a hit. It ran for months. All the networks came down to purchase it. I mean, came to look at it and CBS purchased it. And then it became a television show. And then one day we were in the office and looking at ourselves, myself and Angela as the producers, we hadn't benefited from that success. We hadn't benefited from it transferring from the stage to TV. And I was like, well, shouldn't we have gotten something? (laughs) A check or something. Something. And then it, (laughs) it was revealed to us that the organization should have gotten a percentage of what the playwright received for selling the show to the network. But we didn't have the proper contract. 
And it was at that moment I decided I need to go to graduate school. I need to learn the business of nonprofit arts management. I don't ever want this to happen again to me in my life. And so one day I'm looking for graduate schools. And at this time, it's in the early 80s. There weren't many graduate programs. USC had one. And then as I was flipping through a Black Enterprise magazine one day, I saw an advertisement for Yale School of Drama. Well, my Virgo logical thinking self says, there's an advertisement for Yale School of Drama and Black Enterprise. They're looking for Black students. I applied, I got in, I went to Yale, and I got my master's degree, my MFA in theater management. And from there, (laughs) I was a confirmed arts manager and my career took off from there. And I share that background because it was, you know, as I said in the beginning, it was a very indirect route. And it was a route that was led and guided by spirit, you know, by faith, you know, by saying yes, right? (laughs) By saying yes and, you know, and then responding. You know, I left undergraduate school going to be a kindergarten teacher. And I said, yes, (laughs) opportunity to open up a school of performing arts. And that was it. Now we're not going to slide past the fact that you went to Yale university. (laughs) Okay. We can go back to that. (laughs) I don't want to slide past that because now it's like you see black children there and a part of the fabrics of these Ivy league schools. But back then, it was a rarity. And the fact that Yale decided this is what we need and we're going to make it happen is a beautiful thing. But what was it like walking from Compton to the Ivy League halls of Yale? Well, I will talk about that. But let me say first, when I went to Yale, the drama school was under the guidance and leadership of a Black dean, Lloyd Richards who was the first Black director on Broadway. He directed the, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, Raising in the Sun, the first version in the 50s. Yeah, and he became, he was a, he's a legendary acting teacher and director. And he was the dean. And it was, be, it was because of his vision and his very low-key commitment to diversify every program in that school that... When I was at Yale, there was a Black woman enrolled in every department of the School of Drama, stage management, playwriting, acting, production management, production design, dramaturgy. There was a Black woman in every, I mean, I look back now and I realize we were there doing a dream time. It was also the time that August Wilson was developing his plays. It was the time when his plays were going to Broadway. So then we had all these amazing actors coming through there. Delroy Lindo, Angela Bassett, Sam Jackson, Starletta Dubois. I mean, I look back now and I'm like, damn, that was the (laughs) time to be at Yale. (laughs) I think it was singular. I don't think there's been another moment like that. (laughs) But it was, so it was a a great moment. So you um, had Wakanda before Wakanda. Right, we have a contest. So it was a, and, and that advertisement that I saw in Black Enterprise was intentional, it was deliberate, and they were looking for Black students. So my Virgo brain was correct. 
It reminds me of the story of Nichelle Nichols and her impact on NASA. Mm-hmm. Of how she is the one, she's the reason Mae Jameson was able to travel to the stars. And you never hear the stories. If you haven't watched the documentary, it's amazing. But because of her and her insistence that NASA have Black people during uh, having space travel and her mission to go around the country to find Black and brown astronauts, that's why we have Mae Jamerson. And so mm-hmm. I see mm-hmm. that in that era, there were people forcing and pushing <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. us into these spaces mm-hmm. so that we can succeed. Oh my God. They, I'm literally mm-hmm. listening to you having chills. I was like, I had never heard of him. Who is he? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Look at yeah, Papa Lloyd Richards. He was a legendary. He was a pioneer. He was responsible for August Wilson's career. I mean, August was a talented, brilliant writer as even as a child, but August, um, but Lloyd, recognized his brilliancy and brought him into professional theater in a way that, you know, put him on the stage, the national stages around the country. I mean, he was a brilliant playwright already in his own right. So you asked me how, you know, from Compton to Yale, you know, I went to Yale as an older student. Well, most students were older because they didn't accept, at the time I went there, they didn't accept grad students straight out of undergraduate. They wanted you to know that this is a career that you wanted. So you had to have some real life experience. So first of all, I went there as a mother with a two-year-old. Oh, girl. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) And then secondly, (laughs) before Agape, there was a place in Los Angeles called the Aquarian Spiritual Center that talked to us about it was agnostic, metaphysical training. And I was a member of the Aquarian Spiritual Center. And at the time that I went to Yale, I was a member. You know, had Agape come online? I think Agape may have just started and I had, was going there. But it was because of my spiritual training and practice and understanding that I was able to make it through Yale. Because I knew, even though I may not have had the same educational background, exposure and experience as some of the students who were there, and I didn't come from a family that was, you know, as resourced as kids, you know, some of the students who were there, I knew that I was deserving of, I knew that I had the same abilities, you know, I knew that I was capable of of doing this work, you know, and it was that deep faith and belief and spirit you know, that got me through it because it was challenging. It was hard. The microaggressions and the white white supremacy, it was like live and in effect in ways that they weren't even aware of. You know, for example, I would be walking to class, but I would have to drop my daughter off at the YMCA first. As a black one, walking down the same street as my classmates on my way to the same class, but I had a child with me and I was a black woman. They didn't see me. They would literally walk past me, walk towards me and did not see me because I was just another black woman with a kid. And we were going to the same class. I was blown away by that, that I was invisible, even though as a black woman in the street in New Haven with a, with a child, I was invisible, but we were on our way to the same class. 
it was fascinating just to be able to observe that. There were times when I was really, really, I was challenged, but I had a dream once. And again, talk about spirit. And in the dream, I was like, I was drowning. I was like kicking and, and, and flailing my arms and I was drowning. And then on the other side of the water on land were all these older people in white clothing. And they kept yelling to me, stand up. It's not that deep. Stand up. It's not that deep. And I stood up and the water came to my knees. Girl, after that dream, I was like, I got this shit. This shit, it ain't that deep. Stand up. It's not that deep. Oh, I need that on a t-shirt, on a hat. (laughs) I'm putting that on my mirror and lipstick. Right. Stand up. It ain't that. Like, that is a mantra. That is a chant. It's not that deep. That is that calling from the ancestors, stand up, it ain't that deep. And how you have stood up. I always wonder how you have stayed so grounded with all that you have done, the people and the spaces that you have been in. And you always seem like this fearless oracle. But it's there has to be things that keep you up at night. What are those things and how do you move past them so that you can do your actual work? You know, I am a warrior. Again, I'm a Virgo. Uh, I internalize a Virgo with a Scorpio rising and a Sagittarian moon, if that matters to anyone who's listening. <laughs> because it is important to know, because that Sag moon gets me through it <laughs> and put me, gets right. me out there. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be stuck in mud. Right. But let me say, I am 67, about to be 68. Nothing keeps me up anymore now, Monica. Okay. At this point in my life, nothing keeps me up anymore. (laughs) When I was younger, (laughs) it did. It kept me up. Wanting, I cared about what people thought of me. I cared about, you know, being impeccable with my word. I cared about the integrity of the art. I cared about the artists and being able to pay them and being able to pay people. In this job and in this field and having primarily worked with under-resourced Black performing arts organizations, the biggest challenge and the biggest thing that I faced was lack of resources, not having access to the resources that you know you should have access to based on the quality and integrity of the art that you're putting out there. Yeah, it was the lack of resources. I think that was the biggest challenge and and the thing that kept me up the most when you had to lay off someone or when you couldn't pay someone or if you were struggling to meet the payroll. Of those moments, I would want to throw up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, they have to eat too. (laughs) Yeah, and you care and you care about them. So, but at this point in my life, only because I've had all those experiences, only because I've gone through so much you know, and so many challenges and I'm still here. I don't worry anymore because I now know it's going to work out, you know, is it has worked out and it will continue and it will continue to work out. <laughs> is that what helped you navigate the last couple of years with all of mm-hmm. the shutdowns and the, mm-hmm. well, 
you know, I'm at Waco Theater Center in Los Angeles. Waco stands for where art can occur. It's not affiliated with Waco, Texas at all. Girl, because when I found that, I was like, oh. <laughs> no, not Waco, Texas. So I have to, it's, a, it's, a, it's an acronym for where okay. art. You, you know, all need to make the periods bigger. Yeah, we do. I know. Because between people think of this Waco, Texas, are calling it Wacko. That's... <laughs> so annoying (laughs) we were fortunate that we did get some significant donations and contributions during the quarantine that allowed us actually to grow allowed us to hire new people allowed us to not miss payroll and allowed us to continue to engage artists and communities even though we moved to a digital platform and you know couldn't do in-person events we created digital programs that allowed us to continue doing what we were doing. So I have to say, yeah, I, I, we didn't have the, yeah, the disruption nor the, you know, challenges that many, 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 many arts organizations face during uh, the past two years. Technology has really helped. I remember Clubhouse came about and they were able to do the Lion King an audio version of The Lion King, which blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And I was like, theater on an audio platform, that is something I never thought of, but it was just as rich mm-hmm. as actually going to a theater. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful that innovation happened during this time of quarantine. It took people to places that they never even thought of before. Yeah, you got to see shows that you wouldn't have been able to see because you weren't in New York, you know? Right, right. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And I don't think it's going to go away. I think they're going to be hybrid platforms that folks will be using now. You know, they're going to do digital and in-person, but I think it's here to stay. And I think many organizations will begin, are going to incorporate digital ways to distribute and show their, and share their art into their yearly program. Now, Waco Theater is where you are now, but I remember now you've been at the August Wilson Theaters, St. Louis Black Rep. Yay, Black Rep. Mm-hmm. The work that I saw that really was exciting to me, not that all of that isn't exciting, mm-hmm. but was the work that you did at 653 Arts. 651. 651. 651 Arts. And it was like a collaboration of different genres, different mm-hmm. countries, different cultures came together. Mm-hmm. and put work together. Now, do you think that that is the wave of the future, the way that the generations are coming to work together and putting art out? I definitely think that we're global now. Let me say this. So St. Louis Black Rep was a theater company and it was a theater producing company. So all they do with you know theater and education program, they do a season of plays. When I got to the August Wilson Center, the August Wilson Center was a presenter and its focus was on artists of African descent. So that was the first time I was able to work in various disciplines, you know, as a presenter and to work globally. And then it just so happens that 651 was the same type of organization. It was a presenting organization and it focused on artists of African descent. 
both of those opportunities were amazing. I loved them both. Just being exposed to being able to do music, dance, theater, poetry, multidisciplinary, you know, film, and, you know, have an opportunity to travel the world and to experience these countries through the art, through Black artists was just, I mean, the highlight of my career. (laughs) It was the highlight of my career. Tell us about those travels. What countries did you go to? What collaborations did you work on? Because, you know, I love the continent. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to Johannesburg and I went to Senegal, Kenya, Cartagena, Colombia, Haiti, not Morocco. What's in North Africa? Not Morocco. The other M. (laughs) I can't think of it now. The other M? I think it's an M. You know, when I think of it, we're going to both say, yeah, duh. Right. (laughs) What's Tunisia? Northern Africa. Wasn't Tunisia. Maybe it was a city in Tunisia. Or maybe it was a city. Maybe it was a city. It's going to come back to me. It wasn't Morocco. And I don't don't know why I can't think of it now. COVID, right? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Also went to Cuba. I went to Cuba. (laughs) Yeah, I went to Havana, Havana, Cuba. Yeah. And the great thing is I presented artists. Every one of the countries that I just named, except or states, except Cartagena. I didn't get a chance to present a Colombian artist. So in Cuba, we met this amazing female drummer named Yissi. And we presented her in Brooklyn, a dancer, Gregory Macoma, out of Johannesburg. I presented him. There was a dancer from Nairobi, Kenya, presented her. We presented a a musical group from Haiti. So, I mean, yeah, that's just, I feel like I'm missing some of it, but it was, it was the best. It's the best time. So you were able to bring, you were able to bring them to New York so that New Yorkers could see their work? Exactly. Oh my God. Brought them to to Brooklyn. (laughs) Oh, listen, Brooklyn is the Mecca. (laughs) Please don't tweet me. (laughs) Brooklyn 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 is my favorite planet Mm -hmm. in the universe. Mm -hmm. I love me some Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like walking down those streets and seeing the people and all, I mean, and all of our gloriousness. I love Brooklyn. Black people from all over the world. Yes. Mm -hmm. All the languages, all the colors, all the cultures, just all together. It is, you got to bring people and I can't imagine what they took back with them. Like, I got to see Brooklyn when they go back to their own countries. Now, were you able to take American artists to them? No, that wasn't because that wasn't our goal. You know, our mission was to present artists of African descent in Brooklyn. It wasn't the vice versa. However, though, but when they, once they were here and in residency or in Brooklyn, not here, they uh, or in the United States, they, we made sure that they were able to engage with and meet artists who were working within a similar aesthetic, or if it was an artist that they wanted to meet, you know, that they, you know, wanted to have uh, communicate with, we made sure that happened. So we did make sure the exchange happened artist to artist once they were in the United States. Now, is Waco Theater now doing some of the same work? We're doing similar. Yeah, we're doing similar. We're a presenter. So we do, and we are focusing on the African diaspora. We haven't had a chance to do global work yet, but Waco is only five years old. 
So we are a baby organization. But yes, we want to do that. Yes, it's part of our vision for who we are. And we just haven't had a chance yet, but absolutely. I have always had the knowing that as Black Americans, it's very important for us to reconnect with our diaspora so that we can realize that we are past slavery, meaning that we have a much Mm -hmm. bigger story, Mm -hmm. like a much bigger story. Much (laughs) bigger story. (laughs) Like that was a moment in our lineage, but it's not who we are. And I feel like Black arts can be the vessel in which that happens and bringing together the diaspora through the arts. Mm-hmm. How important is the continent to the survival of the Black theater community? That's an interesting question, but I think it's the reverse. Okay. I think what we're doing here in America is important to the survival of stories that are coming out of Africa, right? I do believe that, and you see that where you have second generation African playwrights, second generation to the United States playwrights and artists, you know, blowing up everywhere. You know, when you think about Lupita, when you think about Dene Gray, who's a playwright and a, yes, uh and an actor, when you think about Somi, you know, who's a theater and musical artist, and there's so many more. Issa Rae. Issa Rae, their parents are, you know, migrated here or immigrated here, and, you know, they were born and raised here, but they're telling African stories, right? So that's important. That's critical. And I'm glad to see that that's happening. The arts organizations that I interacted with, you know, except for with the exception of uh, South Africa and Johannesburg, you know, they're under-resourced, right? They were under-resourced or they were or if they were telling contemporary stories. They were newly recognized. Right. And I mean, that's one of the aspects of traveling that we became aware of the group that I traveled with is that the artists who was work who were working within a contemporary framework some of them in some countries were struggling to have their stories told for various reasons you know because of religion because of identity sexual preference you know they you know they were telling stories that were like taboo right you know in in their communities <laughs> so <laughs> i think there's a lot that we can do Yes. In this country. Support them. And it's still a challenge for us as Black people to tell those stories. So I can't, as evolved as we think we are. Mm -hmm. No, (laughs) So I can't imagine, I can't imagine how difficult it is for a country that it's a life or death situation. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, art is ever evolving. And as each generation comes up, how are you able to keep up? with these kids, Shay. <laughs> Shay, sometimes I don't even understand the language that they speak. I love it and right. I want to learn about it, but I don't get yeah. it. I don't and try I, to keep up. I don't try to keep up. You know what I do? I try to make space, make room for them and then get out the way. Yes. I try to, yes. I, I believe that there's room for the historical foundation that we have and mm-hmm. or, or that my generation has, but we have to make space and we have to make room for the next Shea Wafer, right? Yes. Who yes. I was at 30 years old, you know? And I think one of the reasons, I've always been aware of that and I've always entered into my work environments embracing younger folks because 
I wish I had had me as a mentor. If I had had me, I think I would have made some different choices, right? I had mentors, but they were white men and there were limitations in their mentorship. You know, there were limitations in how they perceived what I could do and couldn't do, right? Because it was coming from a white lens where, you know, I'm here to uplift and empower and push out young people into places and spaces that they are fearful of, you know, or didn't think that they could be successful in. And it's because of me, my encouragement or my breaking it down for them, telling them why they can do it, they're able to go ahead and do that. So I don't, yeah, I don't try to keep up. (laughs) I make room for it. (laughs) That's a beautiful thing because I think that they are such geniuses in what they do. I've been talking Mm -hmm. to girlfriends about how it's like, they're not going to go to work the way that we did. They're not going to stay loyal to a company the way that Mm -mm. we did. Mm -mm. They literally have said, okay, you open the store. I'm going to tear it all down Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to go do what I want to do. And they're able to live their passions in their twenties and their thirties. I think Mm -hmm. it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. I love it. I love it. I love it. But I, I, but I, but I do, I mean, if I had to say anything to young folks is, you know, but you got to honor the history and you got to honor the past and you got to honor and recognize the foundation which you stand on, you know? So yeah, you could come in, you could, you can come in and everything doesn't have to be torn down. You might just need to rearrange it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just move the chair, but we're still going to sit in it. Yeah, or you might need to, you know, make the window bigger, you know? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe rehab a little, but we got to keep the brick wall. <laughs> yeah, you, you got to keep the foundation, right? <laughs> and speaking of your ability to mentor people, girl, you have got a fellowship in your name. I know. Actually, I think I, I think I have two. Oh, <laughs> upgrade me. Two or three. Yeah, I don't. I, I know Unlock Creative has the Shea Wafer Fellowship. And then there's a playwright and a uh, company in LA. They have the Shea Wafer Award. And there's another one. And why don't I remember? Shit. It was Tunisia that I went to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And, and I will remember. <laughs> I will remember. <sighs> no, maybe that's it. It's just those two, right? <laughs> that is fun. But okay, so what was it like when you got the call from Unlocked Creative that they wanted to create a fellowship in your name? I was deeply honored. I felt seen. I felt affirmed. I felt valued. I felt loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I felt like I had made an impact and I felt like, oh, here's my legacy, you know, or part of my legacy, right? It felt good. It felt really, really good. It felt really, really good. And I know it was their goal to give me my flowers while I could, I could still smell them. <laughs> yes, because that tribute, <laughs> I'm going to post it because everybody needs to see it. It was so well done thoughtful and you could just I could just feel the love I even saw your daughter's comments on the side talking about ah, 
she's just crying as she's watching people talk about her mother. Mm-hmm. And for these kids to just honor you in such a way lets me know how deeply you impact them. And I know a little bit of that impact because of how you have impacted me. But to get put a fellowship in your name so that your work can continue on, especially specifically with Black females, because, you know, we have the mind of greatness and it just needs mm-hmm. to be cultivated and invested in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> that's, I, remember, that's, I remember the third one is the Black, okay. <laughs> Black Arts Future Funds has a Shea Wafer Fund. They have a oh. award where they give money to an organization. So I'm going to put this in the universe that Yale University needs a Shea Wafer scholarship. <laughs> I'm just going to put that in the universe. I'm just going to put it in the universe. No, I look, I have to acknowledge all the other sisters who came through that program who were there with me, <laughs> who were there after me. Some that I do know, some that I don't know. So if they... It would have to be more than just me. <laughs> well, it can be more than just you, but it has to include you for sure. Yeah. yeah. Because this is a story of you seeing an ad that changed your life. Mm-hmm. That's nothing but God. There's no other way for me to put that's that. That's it. No, that, that, that's exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. And that's a testament of your ability to, like you said, through your spiritual teachings, to know who you are and just to say yes to the opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's a big lesson because often we shy, especially as black women, we shy away from the opportunities mm. because either we're scared of it or we think it's too mm-hmm. big or we just mm-hmm. don't think we belong in those spaces. Right. And so for you to be in that space as a young mother of a two-year-old <laughs> mm-hmm. and to navigate through all of that is just, oh, yeah. thank you for sharing that story because you just, Yes, facing those fears because, yeah, because when I, my sister went with me to Yale and the day she was leaving, you know, she helped me get into my, you know, housing and everything. And then she was getting ready to leave. Girl, mm-hmm. I cried. I was like, they, mm. made, they made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, what? <laughs> but it was, <laughs> It was that imposter syndrome. It was that fear. Although I was bold enough to apply and get there and I was going to stay, but, but that fear just bubbled up in me and I'm like, oh my God. But then I was like, oh, you know, you just show up and take one step at a time and you will, and you will get through this thing. Yeah. You got to face those fears. You know, I, someone told me the thing you're most fearful of is the thing you should be doing. Mm, Girl, you, we over here going to church. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I always love talking to you. It was always church, meaning it was just a real conversation about real shit. <laughs> that, that just that, because when you open that mind or you plant that seed, it just grows inside of people. And you don't even know the impact that it has on somebody. Mm-mm. But you're always fearless in your conversation. You're just straightforward. This is how it is. And speaking of seeds, let's talk about black seed. Because hmm. you talked about earlier about funding, mm-hmm. how hard it is to get for Black theaters. First, before we get into that, I just want to understand why you're so passionate about Black theater and Black arts. And 
with your educational background, you could have gone to Broadway. You could have gone to some of these big theaters or worked at, you know, in these university settings, but you stuck with mm-hmm. this specific. Yes, area. absolutely. First of all, I'm a, I came up or came of age, you know, in the seventies and you know, I believed in, you know, the Nguzal Zaba and I believed in, you know, the teachings that I learned from the, you know, Black cultural and the Black nationalist movement in terms of our responsibility, you know, to impact our community. And when I saw and when I was exposed to the arts through Crossroads and I saw that it could impact change and empower community, I was like, ah, I can use, this is a tool that I can use. You know, I don't have to do it through teaching. I can do it through the arts. And when I saw the power of storytelling, right, I was blown away. And I was like, okay, I have to do this. Now, I did go work for a predominantly white institution once. And I was so unhappy there because I wasn't connected to the stories. They didn't resonate with me. They weren't meaningful. I appreciated them. You know, I appreciated the structure. I appreciated the actors and the art, but I longed to do the same thing in my community. I longed to do it. Yeah, I'm black, 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 and I'm about (laughs) all things black, you know, because (laughs) they're so, and because I had skills, access, resources, or knowledge, you know, I felt it was my responsibility, you know, to go and to deposit and contribute you know, at a Black organization. I left the arts for a couple of years because it was really hard to work for a Black organization in LA and make a living. And I was working at a university and I remember saying, okay, I can't do this. I'm not done with theater. And so I I asked myself, do you need to do theater in LA or do you just want to do theater? And I was like, I just want to do theater. And my brain said, well, then you're going to have to leave LA. That's how I got to St. Louis Black Rep. Because there were Black theaters out there doing work, but there wasn't one in L.A. And I applied to a job, I applied to a job, a, a company in Atlanta and to St. Louis. And that's how I got to St. Louis. And I tell you what, your work here transformed that theater. Because I remember when I first started going to Black Rep, to the Black Rep, it was in a house. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was in this on the, big on the north old side. house. Right. Yes. <laughs> I heard about that. Yeah. Yes. Girl, it was like it was like creeper house. It wasn't like it wasn't rehabbed. It just had a big, huge living room with chairs in it, and we would go to the performances. And then they got the space at the Grandel Theater. And that was a big leap. And I know being from St. Louis and in St. Louis, we're spoiled because we have like 125 companies. So we have theater everywhere and not every city has that, but the black rep is just such a important part of our culture here. And clearly around the country, it it also has an impact. So speaking of impact, let's talk about black seed because that is something Everybody has a fund now, but to be able to fund specifically Black arts, mm-hmm. that's a special, special thing to do. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. did that happen and where is it now? So there was a small group of us, myself, Monica, Gary, Monica's in the Craft Institute and at Dartmouth College in Massachusetts, and then Gary was in Detroit. We were brought together by Indira, 
who was at the Billy Holiday Theater in Brooklyn and, 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 and Dara asked us to come and meet. She had received a small grant to gather a group of black folks to talk about how to impact you know, the black theater. And so we were talking and meeting and kind of came up with a plan. And this was way before George Floyd. It was way before quarantine and the pandemic. So timing was everything. So, you know, the world explodes. There's Black reckoning happening. And, and the funders, you know, the inequity and funding, funding community, you know, is now center stage. And we had a plan. We had a document. We had created a document. So timing was great that we were able to put that in front of major funders. And they were open to hearing <laughs> about how to bridge that gap in funding and, you know, and how to make amends for the years of the lack of resources that were going to Black theater companies. So that's how the Black Seed came about. It's largely led by Indira, who's no longer with Billie Holiday. She's now at the Apple Theater. I, I serve on the National Advisory Committee now. The program is ending its second of its third year. And we hope that there will be another an extension, you know, for another three years and another three years. But we received funding for the first three years of the initiative. And, you know, hopefully that funding will be renewed and go on and on. But that was a very, very, that was a proud moment too, to be able to impact, you know, and provide resources or to generate resources for a hundred Black theater and arts organizations around the country. That was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So. Cause all people want to do is their thing. Yeah. <laughs> and to give, you know, and, and for it to be, you know, not have all the restrictions that typical funding has and for them to do the projects that they wanted to do. It was really, yeah, it was a gift. <laughs> it was a gift. To give it. Yeah. I'm glad that I was part of the, I was one of the architects. Yes. Yeah. And and now it belongs to the field. You know, it's not like it's not it's not a program that's being run and managed by me or any of the other people who were involved. It belongs to the field now. Yeah. That's beautiful. How can people support it? Or is it just through organizations that support it financially? No, no, no. You can support it. You can make a contribution. It hasn't launched yet, but there will be a, a component, an initiative where we're going to be yeah, seeking additional funding from individuals. That hasn't uh, launched yet, but it will. And people can support it that way. Because there are a lot of Black folks with a lot of money now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we want to tap into them. Yep. Mm-hmm. And even pennies. pennies. too. Yeah. Yes, even pennies. Yeah, the last now pillar... This- Well, the last pillar that hasn't launched will be a national marketing campaign talking about support Black theaters, not support a Black theater, but supporting Black theaters in general. Yes, I just feel like Black theater is that last space that we have that is ours. Mm -hmm. And it's very important, especially with this whole critical race theory mess and people trying to to rewrite history and take it out Mm -hmm. of school so nobody learns it. It's mm-hmm. the one place where we can express ourselves, express our art, and tell our mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. And it's still pure, unlike other genres that we have. It's still pure and it's still ours. And I hope that us funding it keeps it that way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I know we have to have allies that do what we think, but mm-hmm. the allies need to fund and then, like you said, move out of the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. let us do us. 
Because I know that for myself, Black theater is it's one of the things I share with my mom, but it was one of the places where I felt free, like sitting in that chair. And it helped build my confidence because I'm seeing Black folks telling Black stories that mm-hmm. I relate to, like you said. Mm-hmm. And it's so important that we keep that tight and that we keep it honest. And that means allies, please fund it, mm-hmm. but then move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got this. Yeah, we have to have our own spaces where we can do that. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to see that there are many theaters, even though there needs to be a million theaters mm-hmm. around the globe that tell our stories around the globe. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to see that, that there's still that core 100 that is still able to go, especially during these times of the pandemic. And many of those that of the 100 I mentioned are new new initiatives or new programs or new projects that, you know, young folks have launched. And I love that because they're like, oh, it's not here. Let me go create it. Mm -hmm. You got some money. Let me go do it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that is beautiful to know that because that was one of my questions. How can we support the arts? But when Black Seed puts its information out there, that's a place where we can all funnel our money, our time and our energy. So I want to respect your time. We're a little bit over. But the last thing I want to ask you is, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I could talk to you forever and know that you have an open door. Anytime you're like, hey, girl, I need a platform. Okay. All right. (laughs) Boom. No problem. What would you like the world to know about Black women and the arts? Because I feel like, like you said about Yale, that Mm -hmm. it's an Mm invisibleness around what's happening. I would love the world to know, just like the civil, the Black women of the civil rights movement, or probably any major movement in the world, Black women have been the backbone. Black women have been leading, guiding Black arts organizations in this country for years. There are so many dynamic sisters I could name who have been in you know, amazing spaces doing amazing work, you know, both in, you know, especially on the East Coast, you know, in New York, there's sisters now who are running foundations, the major foundations, you know, there's uh, Elizabeth, who's at the Mellon Foundation, which has one of the largest portfolios for funding for the arts, probably second to the Ford Foundation, or they might be above. There's Maureen Knighton at the Doris Duke Foundation, uh, Margaret I can't think of Margaret's last name uh, at the Ford Foundation, you know, right up under Dan Walker. And, you know, they're out there and they're doing it. You know, women, black women who are consultants to the arts, who are doing, you know, placing new people of color in leadership roles around the country. I mean, there's been a shift. There's been a change. The fact that, you know, you have Hannah Sharif leading you know, the St. Louis Rep in St. Louis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a black Muslim woman running mm. St. Louis Rep, the repertory theater right. St. Louis, whatever they're called. And then you have Nataki Garrett at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you know, which is one of the largest regional theaters in this country, you know, young black sister running it. It's, you know. I tell people this is the year of the black woman. I don't know what anybody the, yes told it is. you. Yes, it is. <laughs> Yes, yes, it I is. I have no idea what anybody told you. Yes. <laughs> but the black women in the arts, we have been there. We've been in the, we've been in those rooms. We 
you know, we were the, you know, second in charge or number three in charge or over the programming or over the education programs, you know, in predominantly white institutions as well as in, you know, black organizations. So, yeah, and I think you're, you know, you said something in the beginning and I think about this all the time. It's not enough acknowledgement going on for the, the arts administrators and the arts managers and the role mm-hmm. that they play in the whole artistic ecosystem, you know, yeah, we need a little bit, we need some, we need some acknowledgement because I think, yes! I mean, producing a play or managing a theater company, that's an artistic form in and of itself, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yes. It's, it's, it's an art form. <laughs> I think about, when I was thinking about this whole conversation, I was like, She's the executive director, which means your hand is in everything that's happening in that theater. Yes. And <laughs> I was like, how? Yes. It's like doing a dance. Yes. It's, it's like, like raising uh it's like raising 12 kids at the mm-hmm. same time. Mm-hmm. Like you have to know what's going on over here, you have to know what's going on over here yeah. and how it all blends together and how it all works because the when people see the play or the performance on the stage, mm-hmm. that's the final piece. Yes, that's the final piece. <laughs> that's the final piece. It's true. It's so true. But it's there so are 200 true. other pieces. There are 5,000 meetings. Mm-hmm. There's 20,000 conversations that have to happen before you see a performer on that mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you are, are not only managing it at the Waco Theater, but you have managed it across the country. That's incredible. That is incredible. And I just want to, like I said, honor your time. I am so grateful for this conversation. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm floating. Oh, thank you for including me. I'm glad to be a part of it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it has been enlightening. And I just want you to know that I appreciate that you, the work that you're doing because you are really one of the keepers of the culture. Kid, the kids say the culture all the time, but there's really a culture that runs deep through us as Black Americans in this country. And it's important that our stories be told in an honest and authentic way that is not phased by capitalism or notoriety. Mm-hmm. People are just doing their work. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I love that you have stuck with it. Again, I appreciate your time. And Thank I'm so you. grateful that you're here. How can people support your work or get uh, connected yeah. to you in any way? Yeah, you can find me at Waco Theater Center and it's wacotheatercenter.com. And yes, I say support whatever Black arts organization is in your community, support it by making an annual contribution to it. No matter the amount, if it's, you know, $5 a year to $500 or $5,000 a year, what art organizations need to show to others is that there there are a community of people who are supporting them. So, yes, the dollar amount is important, but it's more important that your you as an individual are counted among the patrons or the folks who care about this organization. So that's I mean, if I could get every listener and every black person, you know, in in every black community to give $5 to, you know, their local black arts organization, that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a mission. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Put five on it. Just put Put five five on on it. it. (laughs) 
every year, every month, you know, however frequently you can do it. Yeah. Definitely. I'm I'm putting that on my list. Thank you, Shay. That's on my to-do list. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you can support me. Yes. Thank you, Monica. This was amazing. Oh, anytime you want to come chat about anything, because we still have to go over the Winnie Mandela piece that we were talking about earlier off recording. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we got to go back to that. Yes, that's important. Yes. Right. All right. I'm sending you love and healing and all the best to you. And I will talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining. Keep shining.